Yeah, I feel like I I mean I grew up on like a very Percy Jackson version of Greek mythology. Yeah. And so it's very censored, it's very PG, it's very it's like, oh yeah, all the gods were super cool and there was like good ones and there was bad ones. And then you like read actual Greek myths and you're like all these people were like horrible people. <laughs> Did it censor that stuff? Okay, to be fair, I never actually read Percy Jackson. Hello everyone, and welcome to Mandatory Media, the show about the books, movies, TV shows, poetry, and other pieces of media that we really love, and really should have been mandatory on your media study syllabus, but probably weren't. We've got three hosts here today. I'm Brett Vandenbrink. I'm a poetic scholar and a scholarly poet whose skill set includes the capacity to identify and create chiasmi. My article, The Art of Lying, or Fantasies Imitatio Dei, on Sir Philip Sidney, J.R.R. Tolkien, and David Bentley Hart, was recently published in Radix Magazine. Yeah, new byline for Brett. Woo. Yeah, I published something other than my Merton Annual thing. There you go. Hi, everyone. I'm David. I've got a bachelor's degree in media and communication studies, but I've mostly spent my time reading and writing about sitcoms, film, and video games. Hey, I'm Seth. I'm a wannabe film critic, a student of the theater, and a general lover of the arts. Today's episode, we're covering an episode from Edmund Spencer's 16th century epic poem, The Fairy Queen. Particularly, we'll be discussing Book 3, Canto 6, Stanzas 29 through 50, also known as The Gardens of Adonis. Yeah, that... It's a long poem, guys. Like, imagine what possessed Edmund Spencer to go, you know what? I need to write multiple books with multiple cantos with at least like 50 syllables, 50 syllables, holy 50 stanzas apiece. Like, absolute madness. Oh, yeah. I've read online, it was money. He would like, he wanted money. From the Queen. <laughs> uh, I mean, to be fair, if the Queen is paying me to write poetry, I would write a lot of poetry. Well, I, I mean, that's partly it, but it's also part of Edmund Spencer's nature. He was... Long-winded? No, no. That, well, yes, but no. <laughs> so he liked to make things fit forms like i believe it's northrop fry who compares edmund spencer to a bee with his honeycomb filling his honeycomb hexagons with honey like he's works to a pattern and he fills it and if you read which you didn't read i'm assuming it, um his like introductory letter to the fairy queen he claims to have modeled it after the 12 Aristotelian virtues. Hmm. And you will notice that there are six books in the Fairy Queen. Why? Because he died. He didn't finish it. Oh. So this huge An poem... Another legend taken from us too soon. <laughs> R.I.P. Edmund Spencer. 
honestly, I'm happy that it's the length that it is. I think that it's perfect the way it is. I doubt that it would have been better if he finished it. It might have been more polished. Do you want to take us through a little bit of the, the historical context surrounding this, Brett? Because yes. the, especially the language, too, seems very Middle English and not Modern English. Yeah, I, I was thinking that today will require... Oh, oh man. So are you just, like, awoke? <laughs> awaked? Awoken? Awakened? Awakened. You awakened the pedantic English major side of me because it <laughs> is modern English. It is yeah, David, it's modern oh, English. Okay. Come the on. shift has happened, as I know you know too well. All right. But any, anyways. Um, so, but you're right today necessarily will require a bit more of an introductory discussion than usual because it is an older work. So I thought it's we... an older form of modern English. Yes. About 500 years ago. Yes. So we'll say a bit about who Spencer is, what the Fairy Queen is, and what this section of the Fairy Queen is about, and who Adonis yeah. is. So before I give my blurb, I thought I'd ask what, if anything, you guys know about Spencer. I know he's a very significant English poet. I know he wrote the Fairy Queen. I, prior to this, never read anything he's written. That's about everything I knew about Spencer before this. I uh, I did a brief... Um, I, had, I had a brief look at his Wikipedia page. Um, and I knew that he wrote The Fairy Queen. And that was, that was pretty much it. That is more or less what I expected. So... That's so, why I'm here. You knew you knew we were going to answer like that. <laughs> yes. There's literally a book called Reading and Not Reading the Fairy Queen. There, it's Spencer is a poet who's much more alluded to than read, which is a shame. Hmm. According to Harold Bloom, to get that away <laughs> episode, he's back. According to Bloom, Edmund Spencer is, at this time, of all the major poets in English, the least read, and in proportion to his merits, the least valued. Though accounts of Edmund Spencer's life, such as Andrew Hadfield's recent excellent Edmund Spencer a Life, are useful, more important in general, it seems to me, is an impression of the zeitgeist of Elizabethan England in which he lived, breathed, and wrote. That was a time when the vital spirit of the Renaissance entered English literature. C.S. Lewis characterized the country's literature to be transitioning from drab to golden at the time. Humanism and Protestantism were important intellectual movements, and Spencer was, in all likelihood, a moderate Calvinist and something of a Platonist. The great work of Spencer's life was The Fairy Queen, a vast, sprawling, labyrinthine romantic epic. For a sense of proportion, it is about three times the length of Paradise Lost, and what is more, Spencer only finished six of its projected twelve books. Camille Paglia calls The Fairy Queen a great beached whale marooned on the desert shores of English departments. According to Paglia, Spencer is a hostage of his own critics, who have thrown up a thicket of unreadable commentary around him. This is unfortunate, 
not because the poem is pornographic as Polio would have it, but because it is good rollicking fun. It is essentially a loosely interconnected series of tales about chivalrous knights and distressed damsels, alongside the occasional damsel disguised as a knight who outnights the others, dashing about from adventure to adventure. Spencer claimed that his epic would fashion its readers into gentlemen, but this would be accomplished by uniting virtue with pleasure. The central thread of the novel, Prince Arthur's quest for the fairy queen Gloriana herself, represents, as C.S. Lewis put it, the thirst of the soul for the perfection beyond the created universe. Although such a high theme is far from the plots in the Fairy Queen as you read them. So I'll give, I'll briefly give the immediate context of the portion we'll be talking about. So there's this woman named Chrysogony. She was impregnated by a sunbeam without knowing it. And when it becomes obvious that she is pregnant, she flees to a forest to avoid the social ostracization. She falls asleep and also without knowing it, she gives birth to beautiful twin daughters, Amoret and Belphoebe. Meanwhile, Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, loses her divine son Cupid, and while seeking him comes across Diana, the virginal goddess of the hunt in the same forest. The two goddesses bicker for a bit, when lo, they come across the sleeping woman and her twin daughters. Each goddess adopts a daughter, Venus taking Amoret and Diana taking Belphoebe. In Spencer's allegorical story, each daughter represents a kind of sexually pure life. Amoret embodies sexual purity within marriage, and Belphoebe represents perpetual virginity. Venus takes Amoret to the gardens of Adonis, which brings us to the topic of Adonis. Before we talk about that myth and the and Spencer's poem, I thought I'd ask what you guys think about the background plot. Watch out for sunbeams is kind of my takeaway. I, I see it more as a cautionary tale about exposing yourself to the sun more than anything. Um, and in these these times of, of summer and hot weather, I'm like, all right, Spencer, I'll avoid the sun. Mm-hmm. Always wear sunscreen. Always yeah. wear sunscreen. <laughs> sunscreen. The prophylactic against sunbeams. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, I, I mean, fair enough. That's yeah. Okay. I I I guess my real uh, interpretation, jokes aside, uh, is that I still don't quite understand it. Like it's a uh, to me, it's not a super modern story. Like I I guess I don't understand the the historical context of it because it's just a funky little myth in my mind like what's happening with the sunbeam you know like uh mm. you know what but I, I i think that especially for first reading of the fairy queen it's okay for to let it be a funky little myth i think spencer <laughs> would have been with that I'm, I'm gonna regret having phrased it that way now <laughs> funky little myth <laughs> Have you read the the entire uh, poem, Brett? Yes, I I have. It's great. I highly recommend it. I highly recommend that you get an audiobook of it and just listen to it mm-hmm. without having to reread the same line a dozen times over 
just let it wash over you like the ocean. I like that. Yeah, I I had a, a very hard time reading this. Um, because I think it, it's a lot of like kind of that reading the same line over a dozen times trying to figure out what it means. I in my in my theatrical explorations and my English explorations, I've read a lot of Shakespeare. And at this point, I'm kind of comfortable with Shakespeare. And if I have to read a play of his or have to watch a play, I can follow it. And so I was like, oh yeah, similar time period. I probably, you know, have some difficulty getting through this, but you know, I, I think I'll be able to do it. I Brett, I really struggled to follow what was going on at any given moment while reading these 21 stanzas. Yep. I, which is why your suggestion to use audio and just let it wash over you. I think uh, if I'm, if I were to do a second reading, I would totally do that because part of it is just figuring out the spelling and being like, oh, this is the word they're that actually was a huge looking thing. for. Yeah. Um, I was like, I was, I was, the words are spelt. They're spelt like they would have been spelt in the 16th century. Whoa. Um, and you realize once you kind of understand the word, you're like, oh no, I know this word, but it's just spelt in a, in a strange way. So it kind of throws you off. Yes, ab absolutely. That's fair. And I mean, Spencer is one of those poets whose work typically isn't modernized for spelling, because quite often when you read a work from this period, it is. Yeah. But yeah. Spencer scholars, for various reasons, such as meter and whatnot, tend to be purists in keeping it as it is. Or, okay, so for, for examples for people who don't have the text pulled up in front of them, and I would say, wh why don't you have the text pulled up in front of you? Um, top of 29, uh, he spells the word she with two E's. <laughs> and joyous with an I instead of a J. Garden is spelled uh, G-A-R-D-I-N. Eternal has two L's at the end. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, remain is, is R-E-A, sorry, R-E-M-A-Y-N-E. -E. Well, spelling conventions weren't a thing yet. Yeah, that's a, that's something I've heard, but I didn't want to say it in case I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but like, at, at, at times like this, English language in terms of its written structure, from my understanding isn't as formalized as it is today, where people are kind of freestyling with spelling a little bit. Yeah. So here's a great example of the whole lack of spelling conventions thing. In the mid-16th century, Arthur Golding translated Ovid's Metamorphoses into English. And in one part of that, he uses the word beautifulest rather than most beautiful hmm. and he spells beautifulest b-e-a-w-t-y-f-u-l-e-s-t 
L L Y S T, which is so delightful, <laughs> but so strange to read. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> We're really just throwing anything at the wall now, huh? Yeah. I, I wish you could still do that with English. Like, I'm going to turn in an essay to a class next semester with just all the spellings I want or just spellings <laughs> that I pull out of Spencer and Shakespeare um, just just to get the, like, the weirdest essay. <sighs> Incredible. Yes. But... Yes. So, wow. So actually maybe before I transition to talking about Adonis, maybe I'll just throw in a little plug. The difficult language, one thing that helps with that is a good annotated edition of the text, which can help explain what's going on in the language and whatnot. And the edition that I gave these guys to use is A.C. Hamilton's edition of The Fairy Queen. And maybe first I'll ask you guys, did you find his annotations helpful? Yes. I mean, so so Spencer is writing in the 16th century, and so he uses a lot of, like, 16th century slang. <laughs> um, so it was really cool just to have those slang words translated, or not, not necessarily slang, but like just words we don't use anymore. Um, like at one point he uses flaggy, which means drooping. Um, or uh, he uses the word fond instead of like the word foolish. Yeah, or he uses the word frankly to mean freely or openly. Or the word leman means a mistress. I wouldn't have known that, so... Thank you to the uh, footnotes. Personally, I love the footnotes of this work. I think that this is one of the great monuments of English literary scholarship. And one of my favorite current literary critics, Gordon Teske, I mentioned him in the Keats episode, which people probably won't remember because it was basically a parenthetical reference. But he writes about A.C. Hamilton's notes here. The notes and other apparatus of Hamilton's edition of The Fairy Queen, including beautiful essays on each books of the poem, established Hamilton's reputation as one of the most important editors of Spencer since the 18th century and the greatest line-by-line -line explicator of Spencer ever. Teske further wow. comments, I know of no other edition of an English poet that is so welcoming to beginning scholars and so continually useful to the experienced. And I thought I'd also add that Northrop Fry, who's probably Canada's best-known literary critic, called Hamilton a first-rate scholar who simply by being what he is and by what he does, creates and fosters a community around him, a community not of discipleship, but of high morale, sustained by the awareness that he is there. Wow. So that's, yes, so that's my little love song for AC Hamilton there. Well, nice. Yes, but back to the poem, Almost. Mm -hmm. Venus takes Amaret to the Gardens of Adonis, which brings us to the topic of Adonis. So I thought I'd ask you guys, 
Do you know the myth of Adonis? And if so, what do you know about it? I feel like I should, but um, don't remember it. Sorry. I'm, I'm going to say uh, Adonis, the only Adonis I'm familiar with is Adonis Creed from the Rocky franchise. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to say a big no, because I'm guessing the Adonis you're talking about is not Michael B. Jordan. Uh, no, it's wait, not. Wait, this isn't about Michael B. Jordan? <laughs> no. What yeah. are we doing here? You know, I haven't foreseen this misinterpretation. Anyway, uh, Brett, who is Adonis? That's not well, Michael B. Jordan. Yes. Actually, <laughs> I, I thought I'd say that I did take a class on the classical backgrounds of English literature, and that class also didn't bring up Adonis to my knowledge, so maybe it's just one of those myths that doesn't come up quite as often as other ones. Essentially, Adonis is a hunter who is so handsome that Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, fell in love with him. Well, she partly fell in love with him due to his handsomeness, but this was partly also due to the fact that Cupid was avenging Adonis's mother, whom Venus had cursed. So after Cupid shot his mother with his arrow, Ovid writes in Arthur Golding's 1567 translation, with that lovely word beautifulest spelt in that strange way I mentioned earlier, the beauty of the lad, nor unto Paphos, where the sea beats round about the shore, inflamed her. To Cythera Isle no mind at all she had, nor fishy Nida, nor Amathus, that hath of metal store. Yea, even from heaven she did abstain. She loved Adonis more than heaven. To him she clinged a, and bare him company, and in the shadow wont she was to rest continually. So basically, she falls in love with him and they kind of, she abandons heaven to spend time with him. The, the And the implication is that they're having sex. So after this, Venus warns Adonis not to hunt animals that are too dangerous. So Ovid writes, Thy tender youth, thy beauty bright, thy countenance fair and brave, although they had the force to win the heart of Venus have, no power against the lions nor against the bristled swine. So... Venus warns Adonis about the bristled swine, and of course, Adonis eventually hunts a wild boar. As a result, Ovid writes that the boar hides in Adonis's cods his tusks as far as he could thrust. He laid him all along for dead upon the yellow dust. In case you don't know, cods are testicles, as in a codpiece. So Venus arrives on the scene to find her lover castrated and fatally wounded. She honors him by transforming him into the blood-colored flower known as the anemone. In other versions of the myth, Adonis is annually reborn in midsummer to be reunited with his immortal lover before being slain yet once more. So, with that pro prolegomena, we can now talk about the section of poetry right. that for today. So why does Adonis have a garden? Because he's a, he likes flowers. <laughs> you know what? Uh, have you guys seen that like Instagram video where it's just like, what do men? What do should women get men? What's the equivalent of men getting women flowers? But for oh men? sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the guy smiles sweetly and says, "Can't I get flowers or something like that?" Yeah, yeah. 
But that's not exactly what it is. Like, it's called the Gardens of Adonis, but really it's Venus's gardens that she brought uh-huh. Adonis to. Mm, another example of a man stealing a woman's work. Exactly. <laughs> Why is Adonis getting all this credit for what Venus was doing in those gardens? Uh, well, I, I mean, here's the thing. I, I feel like Adonis is really the passive figure in this. I think Adonis is problematic. <laughs> Does the myth of Adonis pass the Bechtel test? <laughs> I mean, the way we've heard it, no. Unless the boar is a, is is female and starts speaking to Venus, but it sounds like it's just a regular boar. I mean, to be fair, this myth I don't think passed the speaking test, so... <laughs> No, that boar actually launches into a musical number halfway through. If you read the original by by Ovid, there's like a whole song in there. It's a musical, actually. Yeah, it's beautiful. You know, there's a chance that it might, if you look in Ovid, I'm not certain I'd have to reread it, but there is a bit that I skipped where the curse that Venus does on Adonis's mother is that, you know what, it's about a man. So I guess that uh, work out. So the Gardens of Adonis. Right. We're beginning stanza oh. 29. And also for this one, we won't talk about all the stanzas the way that we Thank did. You. Okay, good. Because so I was like... 29. So this basically covers the background. Um, Venus brings Amaret to this garden. That's why we're talking about it. Or that's why Spencer describes it. Um, the important part is when he says he doesn't know where it is. I wot not well where it is. And then he says this. But well I wot by trial that the same all other pleasant places doth excel. And that basically is him saying, I don't know where this place is, but I know it's the most pleasant of all places. Mm. And there are kind of two meanings to this. First of all, he kind of has heard about it through literary experience but also he's heard about it through sexual experience because there is a very real sense in which the garden of adonis represents the female genitalia and Ah. so entering it represents Mm. sex yes so did you guys Uh, pick up that when you read it nope nope not at all but I'm yeah. seeing here in the footnotes, it does kind of allude to that. Yes. And so later on, when you get to the part where there's the mountain in the center of the gardens, that represents the Mons Veneris or the Mons Pubis. Mm. And the myrtles, which are on that mountain, are associated with Venus. But as Alistair Fowler writes, it's also associated with the female genitalia as well. That's very interesting. Edmund Spencer, just a little little wild guy, I guess. <laughs> and the third book of the Fairy Queen is devoted to the virtue of chastity, which in Edmund Spencer's time didn't just mean abstinence from sex, but sexual experience within a virtuous marriage, so to say. Interesting. But that now we get to the fun kind of pictorial part of the Gardens of Adonis. So there's this description 
It sighted was in fruitful soil of old, and girt in with two walls on either side, the one of iron, the other of bright gold, that none might thorough break nor overstride, and double gates it had, which opened wide, by which both in and out men mote and pass, the one fair and fresh, the other old and dried. O genius, the porter of them was, O genius, the which a double nature has. He letteth in and letteth out to end, all that to come into the world desire. A thousand thousand naked babes attend about him night and day, which do require that he with fleshly weeds would them attire, such as him list, such as eternal fate, ordained hath he clothed with sinful mire, and sendeth forth to live in mortal state, till they again return back by the hinder gate. After that they again returned been, they in that garden planted been again, and grow afresh as they had never seen, fleshly corruption nor mortal pain. Some thousand years so doom they there remain, and then of him are clad with other hue, or sent into the changeful world again, till thither they return which first they grew. So like a wheel round they run from old to new. So this passage is kind of a mythological portrait of souls pre-existing in the gardens of Adonis and being released from the gardens onto earth to take on bodily existence, to return back to the gardens with death. So it's this image of change and also persistence. Did you guys get that or what were your guys' feelings on that kind of mythological portrait of genius and the spirits in the gardens? David, you want to take this one? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> actually, that's the exact interpretation that I had. Uh, I'm right. totally good at this. You just got to bang on, in fact, word for word, yeah, I would say. No, exactly. I, I, no notes there, man. <laughs> that's great. Um, no, needless to say, uh, once again, we are proved bread is way smarter than us. Uh... Oh, no. I, I'm now beginning to question whether this was a good choice for this podcast. Uh, see, <laughs> I know this is, I, hey, this is forcing me outside of my comfort zone. So I really appreciate that. I am curious about his uh, use of the word genius in stanza 31. Um, I'm wondering, uh, yeah, towards the end of the stanza, old genius, the porter of them was old genius, the which a double nature has. I am curious about presumably the the celestial power that's referenced there in the um footnotes what 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 is that celestial power like what's what's going on there brad <laughs> oh oh with genius yeah well I, I think he kind of represents fertility like the word genius tends to be associated with a kind of spirit uh, a genii eventually it would become a spirit of a place but here i think it mainly just means just the kind of spirit residing over fertility and the entrance into life and death interesting so what is the the like narrative context around this like is there someone going into the garden 
is this just a whole extended allegory or metaphor or like oh oh yes it's just kind of like there's no narrative significance really to this description of the garden it's just kind of representative of a kind of fertile growth kind of just like an ideal right kind of as as venus is entering this garden with with the kid whose name i don't remember amaranth her um it's kind of like this is what is more like this is what the gardens are that she's going to yes like maybe i might quote let's see who do i want to quote there are so many people i could quote (laughs) but let's quote andrew hadfield so hadfield is one of spencer's recent biographers he reads the poem in context of spencer's first wife maccabeus shield who died at some point before august 1590 possibly in childbirth or from resulting complications um spencer i believe only had a couple children by her even though they were married for about a decade before her death at the time it was usual to have about one kid a year so there's probably either some kind of tension between them. There might have been infertility or possibly sterile births or miscarriages or those kinds of things. And reading this allegorical setting in that context, Hadfield writes, the garden of Adonis is a fantasy within fairyland, a place where for a brief moment, sexuality is suspended. Nature is fecund and reproduces without problem. So it's this kind of place where the problems of mortality that are associated with sex are for a moment relieved. Even if there's death and change here, it's a death that gives way to new life. Mm. And so maybe one thing that I could ask you about the part that we just read is how literally do you think it should be read? Because Edmund Spencer was a Christian and yet this quite literally seems to imply some kind of system of reincarnation. You guys have an opinion on that? Seth, you want to take this one? Yeah, sure. I mean, I I won't pretend for a moment. I'm going to speak for Spencer. Uh, because what? you're not going to speak for Spencer? I, I don't know what he's thinking. I think that there's a difference between what you're presenting in a narrative versus what maybe you actually believe like i don't think that c.s lewis ever believed narnia was real i don't think J.R.R. tolkien ever believed that middle earth is real i think for the sake of this narrative spencer's assuming that you know the greek gods are real that these mythological places exist to tell you know this fantastical story but i don't think that means that he necessarily believes that venus and uh, Diana are, are real gods or that the gardens of Adonis are a real physical place or that this system of reincarnation is necessarily um, the way the cosmos works. So I'm going to say two things. Oh boy. One of them is a complicated thing that is beyond the scope of this podcast, but I just need to say for accuracy. Cool. So I think that there is a degree where one there is an allegorical meaning that Spencer 
would say is true that this portrays and even things like Diana and Venus represent. So for example, if you look at the context of Florentine Neoplatonism, there's this, there's the celestial Venus and the earthly Venus, the celestial Venus kind of being an angelic intelligence and the earthly Venus being the animus mundi or the spirit of the earth. And I think that if you are going to read a very abstruse Neoplatonism into this, and I think you can, that's what this would be getting at. But then there's also just enjoying the story and the imagery, which I think is more relevant to our purposes. And just at that level, the narrative is just a story which we readers can just appreciate. As to quote something very apt to what you just said, would be Sir Philip Sidney's An Apology for Poesy, in which he writes, the poet nothing affirmeth, and therefore never lieth. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but I, I think we can probably carry on past the genius section. Get out of your genius. Yes. Um, so the next few stanzas are very much about metaphysics. They're about how change exists in this world and the relationship between matter and form. And yes. Which I feel like I don't necessarily have all of the Florentine Neoplatonic ideals running through my head that really give me the perfect appreciation for his metaphysical commentary on the relationship between form and matter. Yeah, but I think we can probably, because of that, skip to around, let's say, stanza 39. Great enemy to it and all the rest, that in the gardens of Adonis springs, is wicked time, who with his scythe addressed, does mow the flowering herbs and goodly things, and all their glory to the ground down flings, where they do wither and are foully marred. He flies about and with his flaggy wings, beats down both leaves and buds without regard, Ne ever pity may relent his malice hard. Yet pitied often didst the gods relent to see so fair things marred and spoiled quite, and their great mother Venus did lament the loss of her dear brood, her dear delight. Her heart was pierced with pity at the sight when walking through the garden them she spied. Yet note she find redress for such despite, for all that lives is subject to that law. All things decay in time, and to their end do draw. And so this is an affirmation that even within the gardens of Adonis, things change. Time is really a measure of change. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And and maybe I'll just ask you guys, like the figure of time, it's a fairly universal image, but do you get the strong visual sense of time being in these gardens? Strong sense of time being in these gardens. Hmm. Sorry, what uh, stanza did you end at there? Um, I read stanzas 39 and 40. 39 and 40. But 39 is where you get the visual description. Like, I, I mean, you mentioned the word flaggy stood out to you earlier. Yeah, I think that word flaggy stood out to me because I had never seen it before. Yeah, it's interesting to see kind of this image of this 
paradise of this this garden of Adonis of of if we want to make that connection of Eden, um, that's kind of almost haunted maybe by the the appearance of ty- of of I almost called Tithe of time, who I, I'm assuming the scythe is like a literal weapon. He's got these terrible wings and he's he's flying around with um with malice, what's the word that he uses? Um Yeah. I I think it's it's an interesting contrast between like the beauty and then the presence of of an evil version of time. So I also think the classic like um you know, like death's weapon is always a scythe. And that's kind of the classic metaphor of a farming tool used for death. So you have the duality of of the the life right. of farming, but the scythe also kills it. I know this is revolutionary stuff that I've just come up with. <laughs> no one else has ever made this connection. So no, I'm excited not, to no, bring it to you all. first. Um, but yeah, I think that's a that's always an interesting duality to look at and keep in mind yeah like i I mean the scythe is, is a fascinating image like i mean in the bible you have that wonderful passage where it says all flesh is grass and so the generations of mankind become this mask that is mown and then grows back again mm. also to talk bring it back to classical mythology the god of time the titan of time is Cronus, who also gelded his father with a scythe. Oh, oh, interesting. Forgot about that. Yeah. Thanks, Percy Jackson. I feel like that's the main reason I <laughs> Which, you know what? It's interesting. There is more implicit castration imagery that's coming out in our discussion than I remember. <laughs> My favorite thing to discuss. I think uh, that's that's going at the I, that's going at the end or the beginning of the episode right there. <laughs> Let's go to stanza forty-two. Forty-two, which I think is one of the most beautiful in the book as a whole. There is continual spring and harvest there, continual both meeting at one time, for both the boughs do laughing blossoms bear, and with fresh colors deck the wanton prime. And ecotons the heavenly trees they climb, which seem to labor under their fruits load, the whilst the joyous birds make their pastime amongst the shady leaves their sweet abode, and they true and their true loves without suspicion tell abroad. Like just even those first two lines, there is continual spring and harvest there, continual both meeting at one time. There is a coincidence of spring and autumn, of first birth and developed fruitfulness. Like whenever I read this stanza, I think of Keats's Ode to Autumn, where you have all fruit being filled with ripeness to the core and with the trees being bowed down with their excess of fruit. But for Keats, that ripeness is kind of torn apart from the spring, which it needs to grow from, even as I'm just trying to remember the ode now, 
But that springtime youthfulness is even recalled in that poem by the full-grown lambs. Right. Calling the lambs that the sheep once were. And so in Spencer, it's much more explicit with spring and harvest, spring and autumn, quite literally being a coincidence. Yeah. Is, is, am, I, am I over fond of this? Like, did this passage touch you guys at all? I'm going to be honest. I think I was too concerned with trying to figure out uh, what was going on at any particular moment, which I think reflects poorly upon my own understanding of this work. Um, yeah, same. I think when, when I always have this, when you explain it, I'm like, that's so cool and yeah. such an interesting image. I would not have picked that up if you had not like spelled it out for me. Or at least not with this little understanding or appreciation or learning about Spencer and this getting used to this sort of language. <laughs> and that's why we have different people with different expertise in this podcast. That there we you go. I'm I bro am learning so much from this episode. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> mm. yeah. It's like when we talked about the power zooms or whatever it was. Yeah. I just had no idea what was going on. <laughs> power yeah. zooms? The poetry of Edmund Spencer. Basically the same yes. thing. Power zooms are something that you probably encounter much more in contemporary. You can so, make... Sure. Brett can now knows how to make 90s style montages. We can understand <laughs> the poetry of Edmund Spencer. <laughs> And now we are unstoppable. <laughs> now, Brett, if you teach a university course, let me know. I would love to take it from you. Ooh, that would be great. That's really what this is for me. It's me being prepared, preparing myself to talk <laughs> about Renaissance literature to undergraduate students. And the, pe the people love it. It's Keats is our number one episode right now. <laughs> yes. So, fifth, so in stanza 43, you kind of get the development of that sexual imagery that I mentioned earlier with the stately mount and the myrtle there. I, get, I, I oh. still cannot believe, like, I was trying to just understand sentence by sentence, and I cannot believe I missed the just little huge sexual undertones that are all throughout this poem, apparently. Yes. Just went woo right over my head. Well, that's part of the thing about reading older literature. You get accustomed to the imagery with time. So v Venus, you associate with love and sex almost immediately. Myrtles, you immediately associate with Venus, and so love and sex, and so on and so forth. I would not have associated the word myrtles with Venus, but... Yes, but that is a thing that exists. There you That's go. Just a general thing that is, it's just associated with her. Add that to your just memory now. Because my, my list of, I have a list of things that are associated with Venus somewhere around here. So I'll have to add it to my list. Right onto the flirting tactics. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> so whenever you read... See, read like Renaissance love poetry and see Myrtle's mentioned, you can be like, ah, yes, that's associated with the goddess of love. Ah, 
There we go. Okay, but back to the poetry. So we see that the myrtle trees are not cut by steel. So you might think about time with his scythe, and who's also in the garden. Mm-hmm. So this is beyond that kind of damage. Um, and let's go on to the next stanza. So you will find that it says, And in the thickest covert of that shade, there was a pleasant arbor not by art, but of the tree's own inclination made, which knitting their rank branches part by part, with wanton ivy twine and trailed athwart, and eglantine and caprifle among, fashioned above within their inmost part, that neither Phoebus beams could through them throng, nor Aeolus sharp blessed could work them any wrong. So the fact that this is a pleasant arbor, not made by art, but by the own inclinations of the trees themselves is important Mm. because it's kind of this, um, what's the word? It's a synergy between art and nature so that nature itself aspires to the form of art. If you read a work like Sir Philip Sidney's The Apology for Posey, which I mentioned earlier, you'll find a comparison between the world that we live in, which is brazen, and the world of the poets, which is golden. And here, Spencer is portraying the golden world of the poets, but is presenting it as though our world had fulfilled that poetic form. So it's it's the world that we dream of. It's the world that we want to have. Interesting. Yes, it's the world of our desires. Hmm. Yes. And I, I don't know exactly what the neither Phoebus's beams could through them throng is meant to signify, like because typically Adonis is associated with the sun, but Adonis is also within these shades. So that's a weird tension there. But who knows, maybe it's just so that the sun can't impregnate Venus as it did Chrysogony. Yeah, there you go. Does, does Phobus uh, the sun then? Oh, yes, yes. Okay. Yes. Did I say Phoebus? Yeah, Phobus. I, I don't know. I, I, I know. Just, I know. I just, I'm learning I, this word for the first time. I just. I was just pronouncing it. You're probably right. Oh, I. I don't know. I, I feel like. You know what? Let's just move past that. <laughs> now I have to Google Phobus pronunciation. Oh, it's Phoebus, according Dang to it. according to Youglish.com. Youglish <laughs> sounds like a very reliable source. So next yeah, we get. Right. A catalog of flowers. So the garden is filled with all of these people who were turned into flowers. Um, I might mention that Amintus, who is mentioned, represents Sir Philip Sidney. And I just thought I'd mention that because I've mentioned him like twice already in this episode. So it's a crossover. Sir Philip. Yeah. Gone too soon. And also, this is interesting because Adonis as I mentioned earlier, was himself transformed into a flower according to some versions of the myth. And actually, when I was reading this again, I thought of Giovanni Boccaccio 
who suggests this interpretation of Adonis's metamorphosis in his genealogy of the pagan gods. That Adonis is transformed into a flower, I think was invented so that it would demonstrate the brevity of our beauty. In the early morning, it is purple, but languishing and fading later, it becomes withered. So also our humanity in the morning, that is in the time of youth, is in bloom and splendid. But later, that is in old age, we grow pale and rush into the darkness of death. Which I think is very apt for what Spencer is getting at here. It's this garden of changefulness, of time is in the garden, and that is kind of what is being evoked here. But at last, we have now gotten to Adonis in the Gardens of Adonis. Hooray. That's the guy from, from, from the myth. Yes. Whoa! So maybe I'll just read the next few stanzas. Sure. There won't fair Venus often to enjoy her dear Adonis joyous company and reap sweet pleasure of the wanton boy there yet some say in secret to the slough apt in flowers and precious spicery by her hid from the world and from the skill of Stygian gods which do her love envy but she herself whenever that she will possesseth him and of his sweetness takes her fill. And sooth it seems they say, for he may not forever die and ever buried be, and baleful night where all things are forgot, all be he subject to mortality, yet is a turn in mutability, and by succession made perpetual, transform it off and change it diversely, for him the father of all forms they call, therefore needs mote he live that living gives to all, there now he liveth in eternal bliss, joying his goddess and of her enjoyed. He feareth he henceforth that foe of his, which with his cruel tusk him deadly cloyed. For that wild boar, the which him once annoyed, she firmly hath imprisoned for a, that her sweet love his malice mote annoyed, in a strong rocky cave, which is, they say, hewn underneath the mount, that none him loosen may. There now he lives in everlasting joy, with many of the gods in company, which thither haunt and with the winged boy, sporting himself in safe felicity, who when he hath with spoils and cruelty, ransacked the world and in the woeful hearts, of many wretches set his triumphs high, thither resorts and lying his sad darts aside, with fair Adonis plays his wanton parts. So that is the myth of Adonis in the gardens of Adonis. He is... So in this version of the myth, Venus brought Adonis from the underworld, from the Stygian gods, to be in this garden. So it seems that she cheated death not once a year, but for all time, keeping him here and enjoying his company as she will whenever she wants. In the background myth of Adonis, Venus fell in love with Adonis because Cupid shot her with his arrow. Mm -hmm. But now we have him laying his sad darts aside. And so that kind of represents a pleasure that isn't forced by some enchantment, but is of their own wills, of their own volition which is appropriate for this kind of paradisal state here. What do you guys kind of think of this 
high point in the story. At last, in our discussion of the Gardens of Adonis, you see Adonis. I mean, I guess good for him. He's got his flowers, his his precious spices. Um, Honestly, if I had my flowers and my spices, I'd be set for life. Um, I'm curious with the word I I yogis? I among us. I'm trying to see if it's gonna be here in which which stanza? Alright, we're looking at stanza 46, second line. Her dear Adonis. Oh, toy, toy, Is that a J? No. no the eyes are for J's here. It's an old spelling thing. I was like, I that, don't know what this word is. Why are there all vowels in this word? That's like how there's some V's are U's and that kind of thing. That's why you were reading those, not like, Lao, it was like, love. Yeah. I was so confused. I'm like, am I, I, I swear I'm looking at a U right now. I don't know what. So the words make more sense when I read them, don't they? Yeah, they yeah. make a lot more sense. <laughs> Another reason of why to listen to the audiobook. No kidding. Holy. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I would, I would understand this with so much more ease if I heard it. Ah, yeah, yeah. I feel so underprepared. Well, Edmund Spencer, Joyous is spelt with a J, so... Oh, checkmate. I've just destroyed the reputation of the Fairy Queen for all eternity. <laughs> Show Edmund Spencer one TikTok and he'd probably just decease on the spot. <laughs> uh, do you think so? My my favorite TikTok is these two guys, you know, they're like, we went back in time to the 17th century to give a warhead to the to a Calvinist pilgrim. <laughs> so they give they give the Calvinist pilgrim a warhead, and he's like, oh, sour. Then he pulls out a lemon and goes, do they have these in your time? These are called lemons. <laughs> and the two guys are like, oh man, I thought he would die. Get out of here. <laughs> Uh, I don't think Edmund Spencer would have survived the Eras tour, though. So, <laughs> no, I don't think Edmund Spencer would have survived the Eras tour. <laughs> Frankly, I don't think I would have survived the Eras tour. And I'm kind of glad for my own being alive that I didn't go. Okay, we're almost done. Let's get through these. Yeah, after totally derailing stands. everything. <laughs> and so, then we can joke about midnights. So stanza 50. And his true love, fair Psyche with him plays, fair Psyche to him lately reconciled, after long troubles and unmeet embrace, with which his mother Venus her reviled, and eke himself her cruelly exiled. But now in steadfast love and happy state, she with him lives and hath him born a child, Pleasure that doth both gods and men a great. Pleasure the daughter of Cupid and Psyche late. So for those of you who don't know, Cupid is the god of love, Venus's son. Psyche is his wife. She was immortal. 
But when they married, they basically had this condition where she could never see Cupid, but had to lie next to him in the darkness at night. One day, she was she wanted to see what her husband looked like. What was he really? And so she held up a lamb. But then a drop of oil spilled on him and woke him up. And then because of this, she was kind of cast away to do a bunch of tasks and whatnot. And this might sound a bit like the story of Mura, yeah. Adonis' mother, who herself lit a lamp to see. Well, actually, she didn't light the lamp. It was her lover who light, lit the lamp, and then she had to flee away. But whereas Mura was eventually turned into a tree, Psyche was turned into a goddess because she ultimately overcame the trials that she was put through. And she married Cupid, and they had a daughter who was pleasure. And Psyche means the soul, Cupid means love, and so it's the union of love and the soul brings forth pleasure. And it's this kind of perfect capstone to this garden of life and generation. Yes. Hmm. So what would you say is the overall... I don't want to say point, but like theme or, or yeah. What's is does Spencer have a moral that he wants us to pull out of this? Queen Elizabeth the first is pretty cool. Well, that's less the moral of this section than of the fairy queen as a whole. And, and really, if anything, it's not the theme of the section because it's about birth and generation and Elizabeth good queen Bess was quite famously the virgin queen but and actually it's funny because Northrop Fry basically says that Spencer portrays two chaste heroines one who's a perpetual virgin and one who represents chastity within marriage in case Queen Elizabeth the virgin queen eventually married that way he had both cases both bases covered which I find amusing. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta make sure you you hit all the options, you know. Yes. No kidding. But I thought that I might read as a summary what Richard T. Noose writes in the conclusion to his entry on the Gardens of Adonis in the Spencer Encyclopedia. So Noose writes, only from the perspective of his mysterious resurrection in the garden does his life and death that of Adonis, take on positive meaning, becoming part of the paradox of love, where the self loses itself to the other only to be miraculously restored to itself. The garden, finally, is that landscape of the soul. It might just as well be named the Garden of Psyche, from which the soul thought itself an exile or fugitive, but which it rediscovers once it understands that world and soul are not mutually antagonistic, but aspects of one reality. And I think that Noose's reading is very helpful because when we read these kind of abstruse, neoplatonic kind of based ideas, we think of this fierce dualism, form, matter, life, death, world, and all of these kinds of things. But in the Gardens of Adonis, it is being brought into a nuptial union. It is brought into... Mm a state of perfection 
it's this very holistic, very positive vision where the soul is not ultimately alien to a world, alien to the world, but intended to it. It is a mutually beneficial relationship, which kind of, it's beyond our experience, but it's something that our experience points to. Yeah. Well, there you go. Also, I should say, the Spencer Encyclopedia, also edited by A.C. Hamilton. And if you thought that the Fairy Queen was long, this is the Spencer Encyclopedia. For the listeners at home, I am holding an enormous book that has a page number. Does it not have page numbers? It must have page numbers. It's too powerful. Yes, it has like 850 pages, and the pages are three oh, columns each of tiny font. Got size nine or ten font, three columns, also textbook size pages. Good yeah. lord. So AC Hamilton. Bless that. AC. I thought that after we paid too much attention to Harold Bloom for the John Keats episode, I should make sure to give a bit more credit to AC Hamilton whose scholarship is much more detailed, especially on Spencer. Mm, totally. Like, A.C. Hamilton is, like, the go-to guy on Spencer. He's indispensable. Exactly, yes. I, I'm so happy you got that pun. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and when I say got, I mean created. You gave it to us. Do you guys have any final thoughts on Spencer? Anything that stood out to you? Do you intend well, to read more of Spencer? My interest has certainly been piqued. I don't know when uh, Spencer and I will meet again, but I hope we do. Because I certainly have enjoyed learning about these 21 stanzas of the Fairy Queen. Yeah, there's just something about reading super old poetry uh, I, that's very eloquently described there. Um, that is is really interesting of like entering into this being like, OK, I've I probably read it twice trying to just figure out what's happening and then systemically breaking it down and kind of understanding it is super cool. And I guess what I always enjoyed about like reading Shakespeare, for instance, of, you know, but then you then you know when you've read a fair amount of Shakespeare, you're like, okay, I kind of get this now. And you read it, and you sure. kind of get it, and then boom, Edmund Spencer comes out of nowhere, and it's like, never mind, I don't know English. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like the thing is that I am a scholar, which might be too high a term, too grandiose a term for what I am. But I, I feel I can call myself a scholar of Renaissance literature, and just say that I might become more used to this mm. kind of language. I've become acclimatized to it. Yeah. So that perhaps I was I'm a bad judge of how difficult others will find it. Yeah. Do we want to do our our classic ending? Favorite moment, favorite theme, and then you know favorite line. 
favorite moment um, was when I figured out uh, you can spell joyous with <laughs> a I. Um, uh, favorite line, I'm not too sure. Um, but I, I really like that ending with, in terms of like favorite theme, I, I, well, not so much theme, but maybe my favorite image, I'm going to use that instead, um, is kind of, yeah, just that ending with like all the elements of the garden and coming together and it's this beautiful kind of crescendo and yeah, that's what I'm going to go with for my answers. For me, some favorites in no particular order of theme or moment or whatever. Um, really love the image of time. My boy Time, T-Y-M-E. Uh, gotta love that spelling. Uh, with the scythe and his, uh, what is it, his flaggy wings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a poetic image, but it's also kind of funny of this personification of time that's got the flaggy wings and cool sight. Yeah. Sure. Um, I also enjoyed, we didn't really talk about it. There's a stanza that's uh, stanza 45 talking about all the, all of the people from Greek mythology who got turned into flowers, I believe. Uh, Hyacinthus, Narcissus, Amaranthus. Um, I just think that's a, it's a cool bit of, of structure. I feel like I got, you know, it's a, it's a reference to their pop culture that I'm like, I get it. I got that one. I there think. you right, go. Right, right, right. Uh, yes. I'm sorry that we didn't talk more about it then. No, that's fine. Oh, okay. It, it, it was, it was a very brief, that's literally my only thought about it was all those people turned into flowers. I get that one. Yes. What about you, Brett? It's time, oh. time to pick some favorites. <laughs> well, uh, like I said, was my favorite during the episode itself. I just love the image. There is continual spring and harvest there. Continual both meeting at one time. For both the boughs do laugh and blossoms bear. And with fresh colors deck the wanton prime. <laughs> like the boughs do laughing blossoms bear. Like what lovely alliteration. What a lovely image, just like laughing blossoms. Like that's so lovely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I, I I couldn't think of a better image of paradise than just this joy of spring and harvest and bird song and laughter. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I mean I like I I I love like the kind of mellow seasons of spring and autumn like there's it's like warm but not too warm cold but not too cold it's just this temperate perfection there's this lovely mildness which really speaks to me there are times of change yet it's when winter changes to spring it's that change from a kind of death almost to a kind of new life and even when autumn might be seen as a change to winter yet in itself it is a time of fullness of harvest that's just gorgeous Mm. all right everyone that's our discussion of the fairy queen thanks for listening everyone 
Our music is composed by Christopher Whitford, and the podcast is recorded, edited, and mixed by yours truly. If you want to hear more from me, you can visit workingthroughit.substack.com. And if you want to read more of my stuff, you can visit my blog, sethinthefilmscene.blogspot.com. If you would like to see any more of my work, you can visit linktree slash V. That is spelled L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E slash B-R-E-T-V. You know what? We might cut out the fun fact just because it kind of breaks the pace, but I'll give it anyways. Right. So, you know, the whole Chrysogony impregnated by a sunbeam thing. Yeah. So in that context is where we get the first roses are red, violets are blue style poem. Ah, that's very interesting. Yeah, so, like, it doesn't follow the rhyme scheme of that type of poem, it follows Spencer's rhyme scheme, but that's fun.